0: Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Eidelberg. Coming to you from Auckland and from Boona is Emma Strutt. Hello there, Emma.
1: Hi, Ben. How are you going?
0: I'm very good. Thank you. Now, one of our key drivers for this podcast is to bring to you conversations that relate directly to Australia and New Zealand. Now, this episode is going to be exactly that, and we are so excited. We have already had some fantastic conversations with health experts, Uh, relating to experiences directly to our two countries. We've spoken about our oceans and plastic pollution that we cause. And on this episode, Emma, what are we talking about?
1: We are going to be talking about the Green Protein Report today, um, which discusses how we can go about meeting New Zealand's climate change targets by 2030 um, through reducing reliance on animal agriculture. Now, I always get to introduce our guests today, um, but we've got two phenomenal humans joining us with resumes as long as their arms, may I add. So <laughs> um, welcome, Yasmeen Dubu and Professor Andrew Knight. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You're quite the power couple. I won't read through these extensive resumes and I'll just kind of open it up to you to kind of give us a little bit of a background on and where you're coming from.
0: Now, I'm just going to jump in quickly, Andrew. Happy birthday. I believe it was a, a bit of a big one and um, I see you guys got up to some super exciting stuff over the weekend Thank
2: you very much. It's locked down here in the United Kingdom. So um, Yes, mine here very kindly uh, turned our flat into a crazy golf course because <laughs> I've been uh, wanting to play mini golf for a long time and we can't. So see, uh, secretly did that when I was out uh, running and it came back and, and we had a fantastic time. We also went extreme kayaking. We decided to be um, trying to uh, kayak from Winchester, where my university is, all the way to Southampton, which is about 30 kilometres, despite having almost no skills, which became rapidly apparent uh, when we ended up a tree and lost the river for three kilometres at another stage. So we had a great time. Thank you very much. It's important to get you, to, to get your daily exercise. We're still allowed to do that here in the United Kingdom, and, and the government's chief advisor um, took a drive to a scenic castle to test his eyesight, so we thought, you know, to, to, yeah. test, to test our eyesight, um, this is hopefully justified.
0: <laughs> That's okay, and one, one of our health ministers here went mountain biking during our lockdown, so, you know, they, they all seem to be leading the way with, uh, you know, good examples. So, um, <laughs> now, um, yes, mine. we'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, like Emma said, extensive resume with both of you, but... Um, yeah, a lot of uh, really significant experience in, um, I guess, lobbying if if we call it that to some degree. Um, tell us a little bit about what you know, your background what, what, and what you do.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, basically, I, <clears throat> I'm from the Netherlands, and um, I became vegetarian when I was twelve, and I was quite um, into environmental topics and. Um, then I found out about a new course that had just started in the Netherlands called Animal Management. I thought this is exactly it. I want to improve animal lives. And I was about seventeen when I found out about that. And um, it's been my passion and drive ever since. So all my, yeah, all my degrees and, and experience have been in animal protection, promoting plant-based diets, veganism. Uh, so I've been very lucky in being able to do what I'm passionate about. And uh, from from basically over twenty years now, and. Yeah, I studied animal welfare and animal behaviour in Edinburgh in 1998, 99. Uh, And then when I came back, I started uh, working as a teacher. I set up a new course in further education: animal management and animal care. Um, And that was quite tough because it was a, um, you know, completely new field. I didn't have an education degree back then, and also just to work with uh, students who were only a few years younger, but they were slightly different in their attitudes. They wanted to be more practical hands-on with animals and not learn about the theory so much. Um, So although I have been and still are very passionate about education, I realized after a few years being in front of them is probably not the best use of my time and skills. So I'm I'm better at actually running education programs and setting up um, curriculum that that can help include animal welfare. Um, And that's what I did at World Animal Protection for four years. I went to uh, London in 2004, I helped uh, introduce animal welfare in veterinary curricula and also Mm -hmm. in uh, um, uh, undergraduate courses around the world, so that was really cool for four years. Uh, I've done a bunch of other jobs with um, working equines, um, as I said curriculum design and um, also promoting alternatives to harmful animal use in higher education and that's how we met Andrew and I (laughs) (laughs) about 17-18 years ago. When he was looking for alternatives to use during his course, and I had just started my job promoting those um, models, uh, CD-ROMs and mannequins and other simulations to help students learn. So this this has always been a passion and edge, yeah, of both of us. And um, then in 2011, I took up um, the position of uh, CEO at the Vegan Society, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But that followed a period of about four years when I had set up a political party called animals count at the time which followed the Dutch party for the animals and I uh, was very yeah very excited to uh, get involved in that and, and run um, you know contest elections here uh, in the UK <clears throat> and um, then I thought after four years you know I'm Dutch I'm not allowed to vote here I'm gonna pass it over to another British person still stay involved a little bit in the background but um. I'm gonna focus more on NGOs, and uh, then you need to be a bit more politically neutral. So focus focused on uh, setting up better systems in the vegan society uh, in improving our public reach and media outreach, uh, which was really great. Um, it, it was hard work because there was a lot to do, and we were fighting still against a lot of yeah, negative perceptions, but I think we made a lot of progress in that uh, nearly five years <clears throat> Uh, When I felt at that time, it wasn't really worth my time to stay at the Vegan Society anymore. I wanted to uh, um, spend time with Andrew. We'd been a part, you know, moving up and down the country all the time. And um, also the changes in governance meant that I felt it wasn't really my place to be anymore. Um, So I actually went to New Zealand in 2016 to take up a new position at SAFE, the um, CEO of SAFE. And that was great. Andrew joined me after about um, eight months to, to come and live with me, also working at SAFE as education director. And we tried to kind of lift the standards, focusing more on education policy and how we can make uh, yeah make it more credible and work on, on um, reaching new audiences. <clears throat> so that's what we did for about one and a half year. And um, Then again, Andrew had to make a choice because he was on secondment for the university, he can tell a bit more himself, but he um, had to make a choice, either go back and to his university job or stay in New Zealand. Um, And there was a bit more prospect here, so we decided to to go back um, to the UK. And I then became the international director for ProVeg International, and I'm currently the vice president, Um, so the president, Sebastian Joy, oversees the whole organization in eight countries and, and uh, pro regions and I <clears throat> actually <clears throat> look after all the different offices and the grant program, the communication departments um, and support all the different um, directors. So it's it's a lot of work, but it's great because we're really trying to, to build this global movement of being pro-veg. And, yeah. Okay. So you are one
1: busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm tired. How you find time to sleep?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable and and uh andrew uh, you know I, I look at your your um <laughs> i I, I sort of uh i don't know if i got this from your website or linkedin or or something but it starts off your uh sort of little cv starts off with andrew knight is a ridiculously busy bloke now, from what we've heard, you've got a lot to live up to because what we've just heard from Yasmin, I don't know how you match that, but it sounds like you're equally as busy. What's yeah? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, we have a chronic problem with work-life balance, <laughs> and,
2: um, but I am originally from Perth, uh, West Australia, and sort of helped launch the Australian campaign against the live sheep trade in the mid-1990s. And I found it so rewarding to be involved in doing something that would impact you know, millions of, of lives, to really, animal lives, that I mm. thought, how do I set myself up to get a career where I can spend um, the rest of my you know, career doing worthwhile things like this? Um, and I had been uh, sort of a, a unqualified activist, uh, an animal rights activist with little money uh, trying to run these campaigns on a voluntary basis and then crippled by lack of Uh, resources and having to give a lot of media interviews, and people would ask, what did I do for a living? And I'd have to say, I deliver pizzas, I deliver newspapers, Mm -hmm. and so on. So I thought, you know, I need to set myself up uh, more professionally, I need to become more expert about all these issues, uh, uh, be able to actually afford postage stamps for my campaigns, so I get some money. Uh, and get some qualifications that would enable me to be taken seriously. So I studied real hard, uh, got into the veterinary course uh, at Murdoch University in Western Australia and then rapidly went sideways for about five years, uh, being drawn into a big campaign to bring humane teaching methods into the veterinary curriculum. Uh, students would traditionally learn um, subjects like anatomy, physiology, surgery via harming and killing animals and we wanted to bring in humane alternatives. So. That sucked enormous amounts of time, and I I ended up uh, barely passing the course, uh, but we did actually succeed. We brought in uh, conscientious objection policies and humane alternatives alternatives, uh, at that university and a number of others. And indeed, the numbers of animals harmed in education has drastically fallen uh, since then. And this has uh, gone on um, in other places too, including uh, New Zealand and uh, the US. So that's really good news. After I graduated, um, I started doing. Um, I worked for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine uh, as a consultant, and started doing studies looking at uh, the use of animals in research and alternatives, as well as animals in education and alternatives, and ended up publishing a bunch of um, scientific studies, it's actually easier to do than you might think. Uh, the good thing about animal research is there's so much uh, published in the scientific literature, it makes it really easy to find out facts and figures and to analyse it and then to start to criticise it. Uh, it's much easier than a subject where there isn't a lot of material in the scientific literature. So I did that and I ended up um, um, getting a PhD uh, doing that actually. and. and Uh, I also went to the UK and worked as a small animal veterinarian, um, part-time as a locum vet, which gave me time to be doing all this research on the side and publishing lots of scientific studies. Uh, It led led to a Book of Mine, um, The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments. Um, All of my sort of knowledge of humane teaching methods uh, led to me being recruited to go and work at one of the world's biggest veterinary schools, uh, which was in the Caribbean in 2013 to 2014 running their clinical skills lab. And we taught uh, surgery and clinical skills uh, to students studying the first semester of their curriculum, building every single semester uh, using models, mannequins, and simulators. Uh, So I did did that. And in 2015, I had the opportunity to go to University of Winchester, one hour south of London, to set up a new center for animal welfare with undergraduate degree uh, and also a distance learning master's degree in animal welfare, science, ethics and law. And effectively, I now have a a small factory that turns out about 20 plus graduates each year that have got three crucial things. One is um, a set of expert knowledge about the full range of animal welfare issues. Another is uh, qualifications that enable them to be taken seriously by a full range of stakeholders in society. And thirdly, is a set of really good communication skills. We require them uh, in their assignments, not just to do uh, academic essays, but also to publish blogs, do presentations, uh, prepare academic posters, short YouTube videos. So they come out with a full suite of uh, communication skills that uh, will enable them to uh, go out in society and really make a difference, which is what 90% of them want to do. They want to go and be professional animal advocates. So so I run all that and I, I do research. At the moment I'm involved in some uh, extremely exciting research uh, about plant based diets for companion animals um, and I was in New Zealand as, as Yasmine said uh, um, she likes to um, um, give, give me give me orders no, no I'm, I'm kidding <laughs> but then she asked me to come over and, and work for her uh, when she was the CEO of SAFE so uh, I was there as director of research and education from uh, 2017 to 2018 um, and Uh, While I was there, I set up a new um, veterinary specialty uh, in animal welfare in New Zealand um, and was involved in many projects, one of which is the report that we're going to talk about shortly. Uh, So I continue to be um, basically an academic animal advocate, um, so try to publish um, uh, peer-reviewed studies, uh, providing good evidence about welfare problems of animals in various uh, situations and support uh, others, whether it's be the students go through my courses or whether it's mentoring uh, other advocates um, as, as I often do. For example, veterinarians who want to have specialist careers in animal welfare advocacy. So that's what we do. We, uh, we're pretty busy.
0: <laughs> and, and you still find time to go adventuring and and, and you know, your runs are uh, you're both very active, which is amazing to see. Um, representing the plant based community, so it's good, it's good to see you. Like, like you said, it's important to keep moving.
3: Yeah, last year we we actually had more time. To, it, it, it's weird because last year um we also got married, and that took up a huge amount of time in terms of preparation and everything. And I had a big event that I had to organize in August, a month after the wedding. Um, so that was all happening last year and we still managed to run more than, than we do this year <laughs> so for, 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 for some strange reason this lockdown and the coronavirus has made us even more busy bound to our desk not running and yeah our times are much slower this year than they are last year we were doing fast half marathons last year but not now but yeah
0: well we've been very lucky in Australia and New Zealand uh, with our lockdown um sort of protocols that we've actually been allowed to be out so you know i find i've actually been running same more. here
3: Same here. yeah yeah same yeah. here we don't have an excuse really um <laughs> we were allowed to run but we just didn't do as much of it
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah yes mine's being a little harsh um yeah. she routinely places in the top three percent of all women and i, Blast- I think i think she, she still would be somewhere close to that level um but the funny thing is that, that the older that we um get the faster we seem to run we're actually breaking various records um it's bizarre actually i, I think maybe the longer on a plant-based diet the quicker you get and, and as the mm-hmm. years pass it becomes longer for us so maybe that's why we're getting um quicker as I say, a little bit of a hiccup this year um not quite as fast as last year but nevertheless some, some very fast times and the only the only possible explanation is plant-based diet mm-hmm. i think
1: Yes, uh, uh, chucking wait. that protein-deficient myth right out the window, <laughs> that's
0: for sure. <laughs> oh, look, that, that's, that's a topic very close to my heart, obviously, from the sporting perspective, as I do coach a lot of endurance athletes. And um, I do find it's all relative to your starting point, of course, but um, you're right. Focus on the right uh, nutrition. You're taking the inflammatory-causing you know, foods, and, and you, you're, you're putting more in of the anti-inflammatory and improving your recovery and training smarter. And you can get a little mm-hmm. bit quicker to some degree, so uh, why not? And and that's brilliant. So we might have to get you guys back on when we do our, our sports specific um, episodes, and we can talk about your your uh, <laughs> escapades there. And but- done a
3: lot of other exciting things. So definitely do. Yeah, he's done a lot of extreme ironing and <laughs> climb Mont Blanc, etc. So oh, another time.
2: Road gaining. I don't know if you've heard. Yes. Of that. Yes, it's quite big in sports, here in New Zealand. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so I was, I was a road once and we used to have a lot of fun in those 24-hour endurance events uh, yeah. around the Australian bush. Yeah,
1: that was great fun. <laughs> okay, we're definitely doing a part two then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, let's get cracking in because we do have, you know, we, we, we've got a certain amount of time and um, I can definitely digress all day long about sports and, and, and everything. And, cra- and what we, some people recall, re- refer to as crazy activities but um i call them fun and i think you guys do too so the green protein report um meeting new zealand's climate change targets by 2030 not 40 50 60 but 2030 um through reduced reliance on animal agriculture now when i saw this report and okay i was going to do a little trick where people can hear listeners can hear me flicking through these pages over 90 pages long um I think you've pretty much answered maybe part of the question, why New Zealand?
3: Well, the main reason is that I started writing it whilst I'd safe. So I was in New Zealand and I felt uh, based on the report that we did at the Vegan Site in 2015, that was the um, Grow Green report, we thought we need to do something similar here uh, to have a coherent argument uh, against the expanding animal agricultural sector here, especially dairy, Uh, And not just focus on the animal issues and animal cruelty, which SAFE was very well known for and did a great job at. But I thought we need to bring in the economic arguments and environmental arguments and show the way out. You know, that's uh, very important that you don't just uh, criticize animal agriculture from an animal welfare point of view. And um, that was the idea that we would have a kind of report that covered all these important topics and health, of course, uh, taking the human health. And looking at all these aspects, specifically for New Zealand, the 2030 goals were basically based on the New Zealand government's own goals. And I still think it's going to be very tough to meet those goals if the animal agricultural sector is not going to be addressed. It's one of the key contributors. And um, New Zealand could lead the way. It's it's small enough to really uh, take leadership on this issue, and show the rest of the world, particularly Australia, but also I think other nations, that you can take progressive action that doesn't harm the economy. Now, how you do that is is still, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. But what people often forget, and especially again with dairy, is that a lot of the external costs are not included in um, when you look at all the profits, for example. And if you were to take that into account, the cleaning up of the uh, nitrates in in the water, in the soil, and making you know and, and dealing with the greenhouse gas emissions then actually it could be a, a neutral or even a negative um contribution to the economy and people don't realize that and they just look at the, the big kind of profit uh, pictures and that is misleading even if it did result in a profit because that needs to be uh, updated those figures are somewhat old you know they're from 2015 or some some figures are even older looking at um how, how people's perceptions are of a degraded environment, even if it is a profit, then it's still not worth having uh, such a damaging yeah, agricultural sector that um, the children and grandchildren will have to deal with one day and um, we are seeing lots of um, animal species going extinct or being vulnerable and we're seeing the pollution of the rivers that people care about, you know, I just looked at um, another survey, more recent survey from 2018, and 80% of New Zealanders uh, care about the pollution of waterways, fresh water, and also the oceans. So um, it's it's really close to people's heart, but they, they haven't necessarily made the connection. And often, actually, they are not even the ones who are net directly causing this, because 90% of the dairy export, uh, the dairy is exported, and I think that that's uh, something that will <clears throat> come to them in terms of economic profit. But it's it's a profit with um, a sting, I would say. So this is this is the idea that people start thinking about these issues, talking about potential um, solutions and a way out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you did mention dairy um, multiple times there. And can we just expand on that a little bit? Because New Zealand's a little bit unique um, with their dairy industry being so disproportionate, um, like contributing to the economy and also the types of farming that's done there. Um, And you've also got this clean, green image when you think of New Zealand, but it's actually quite a polluting industry, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and and it's funny actually that the greenness is actually quite unnatural because it's been Hmm. um, uh, artificially stimulated. And um, there's a lot of fertilizer used to grow grass and a lot of um, water extracted to irrigate the lands, to grow that grass for the cows to eat and then turn into milk. But it's a very inefficient process. Uh, And surely that land could be used in much better ways that are not as water intensive and, and nitrogen intensive and dr mike joy has written extensively about the nitrogen bomb you know that, that, that a lot of that is now in the soil and it's going to take years yeah. and years, and years to, to break down um so yeah it's it particularly canterbury and Waikato regions that are really um polluters and and where there's such a monoculture of grass and dairy that is totally yeah, uh, out of balance with, with what you normally see
1: yeah um, and Andrew, I've heard you speak before in a, in a previous podcast about the dairy's impact on all of the rivers and the waterways. Uh,
2: yes, indeed. I think um, based on some of the previous studies, there are only some rivers on the west side of the South Island of New Zealand which are still considered to be unpolluted. Um, pretty much all of the other rivers and waterways around New Zealand are considered to be uh, polluted. That's um, because of the manure runoff from uh, dairy and other farming, and uh, the fertilizers that have been applied. So uh, sadly, uh, there are bacterial levels in those rivers, and they're not particularly safe to swim in uh, or drink from anymore, which is such a shame because New Zealand has a reputation, and it once used to be true that it was an absolutely pristine wilderness environment. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and to see it being uh, destroyed like this, uh, essentially for the short-term profits of, of the dairy sector, uh, is is a, a real tragedy, and I think that one that uh, many
0: New Zealanders uh, care about and increasingly so. Emma, Emma and I were talking about this offline. Um, you know, where she said, "Well, you know, New Zealand looks so pretty. Like, where is this pollution?" But um, you know, for me personally, as an athlete, and we've spoken about this in other shows, um, is that it's becoming more often that you turn up to an event, an Ironman event, a triathlon event, a swimming event. And the swimmers cancel because of water quality, and it's not necessarily pollution because of runoff of sewage or stormwater. It's algae bloom, and we mm-hmm. know that um, you know you make reference to Dr. Mike Joy, who's an environmental scientist here, a great speaker, great knowledge, and and he talks about exactly that the nitrate levels in in, in the waters, um, and there's there's a diagram there or a, a um, a sort of a little chart that he refers to which is sourced from the new zealand ministry for the environment and it shows exactly that the waikato the canterbury plains southland um and and even the wairarapa these are heavy dairy farming uh parts of the country where the nitrate levels exceeds the legal limit so we're not talking about the water's just polluted it exceeds the legal limit i mean that is scary that's you know that's i'm looking at the diagram now that's it over that's two-thirds of the north island and probably about half of the south island it exceeds the legal limit that's scary
3: yeah absolutely yeah i just had a look at those graphs again last night to remind myself and um it said that of the nitrate leach from livestock 65 percent was from dairy and 15 percent from sheep so once once upon a time sheep were roaming all the lands of new zealand and that's decrease now because of less demand in wool and um, synthetics have replaced uh, the the demand for wool and at the same time the demand for dairy particularly in China has increased. Um, And I think what we need to do is, is, you know, have a multi-pronged approach and look at both livelihoods and alternatives in New Zealand as well as demand in other countries and look at how we can stimulate plant-based dairy or non-dairy in um, China and other countries, you know, to to really address this issue, because when there's demand, there's going to be this, um, yeah, this heavy pollution, and it it is scary, as you said. It's um, the irrigation, the nitrates, it, it, it can go on. It's just not sustainable. It really will come to a breaking point.
2: And this is this is the problem when you have an industry that's set up um, whereby they're not paying for the externalities, mm. so for the various forms of environmental damage uh, are not factored in economically. Uh, the only economic part seems to be the the profit that's made from the production of the dairy products. So you know it's that that's obviously needs to be addressed. And indeed, that's one of the policy reforms we call for in our report in various ways, starting to. Um, implement the polluter pays principle and the factoring of the um, various um, environmental resources that are being degraded and destroyed um, financially, um, which would mean that the uh, cost benefit ratio would drastically alter and the industry would not necessarily be uh, as profitable as it currently is.
0: And in your report, you actually show some stats, and you show how you know you talk about demand. Consumption continues to grow, which you know we talk about how veganism is growing in popularity, and we talk about you know people becoming more conscious of their health. Yet, um, you know consumption's growing. So in in, in New Zealand, I presume in Australia would be very similar in terms of demand for pork, beef, and poultry. I was astounded how much chicken people eat in New Zealand. I mean. <laughs> I'm not eating it. I know a lot of people aren't. So how much are people actually eating? Um, but obviously with that is the direct correlation with um, the low consumption of fruit and veg, which, come on, 2020, we know how important that is. And then, of course, the increased obesity rates, which Australia and New Zealand both, uh, you know, compared to, to, to the world, is, is <laughs> it's one thing we're doing well in. Uh, you know, we're leading, we're leading that, which is which is not good um no. so you know you talk about reforms and you talk about demand well the demand is going the wrong way
3: yeah it's going both ways i think there is mm. more awareness also of health healthy eating and uh yeah eating more plant-based but it's yeah sadly um and and this is where i think the industry is very well resourced in clever meat and marketing campaigns and um and dairy campaigns it's 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 very kind of pulling at emotional strings and and Focusing on values that people care about in New Zealand and Australia, like family values and community, and and they know, they are very clever at, at, at convincing people that it's normal, necessary, um, healthy, etc. And I think that's one thing that that's another thing that we also call for in the gov- in the report that we need to strengthen the horticultural sector because when, for example, in uh, the UK, I think it was maybe seven years ago. There was a bit of a campaign to make kale look cool, you know, as as a healthy food. That worked. It really did um, increase the demand for kale, and a lot more people are now using it in smoothies and in their cooking and uh, all sorts of recipes. Um, so I think that 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 kind of campaign can work, but you need to invest in it. Yeah. And at the moment, it's completely skewered towards plant-based, uh, towards meat and dairy, and I think that needs to change. So,
2: um, I don't know, I know if this is. It, yeah. Yeah. No, carry on, Andrew. I was just going to say, I think think a big part of this is the rise in consumption in developing nations, actually. uh, Out of the global population of roughly 7 billion people, about 3 billion are uh, developing world consumers who are uh, rapidly changing their lifestyles as they seek to emulate what they see as being the affluent and desirable lifestyle of of wealthier westernized nations, which have a much higher um, consumption of animal products, including dairy. So as, as um, the societies develop, uh, particularly in China um, I was gonna and, say, and yeah. other countries, yeah, they uh, develop the financial resources to be able to change their lifestyles in ways that they see uh, as being desirable, which is much higher consumption of these products. Um, but it's, it's certainly not... Um, something that we can ignore in places like New Zealand and Australia. In our report we uh, talk about the rates of uh, obesity and it's it's just incredible and tragic that uh, two-thirds of the uh, New Zealand population are either overweight or obese mm-hmm. and that rate is similar uh, I think in Australia and indeed other highly developed nations as, as well. We have seen of course an increase in, in awareness and interest in plant-based uh, diets and Healthy lifestyles in general in these developed nations, and that's fabulous. But unfortunately, it's being uh, greatly eclipsed by the increasing consumption of these these unhealthy products uh, in developing nations.
0: Yeah. Now, what I was going to say earlier was, um, I don't know if this is a myth, and I should probably research it properly. But I quite like the idea behind it: is that Popeye. Uh, the canteen Popeye was yeah. was created to create you know there was an oversupply of spinach in the on the US market so let's make spinach cool. Um, I don't know yeah, if that's true I think so. yeah. but I love that story and and hey you know spinach gives you muscles makes you strong so plants can give you protein and calcium and all the other you know nutrients that that one needs so maybe that's the way forward more cartoons I think and more so. social media <laughs> that way um
3: totally yeah we need to make it cool and 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 attractive and low threshold and all those all those things Uh, just very one more quick point about hmm. the um the growth in demand i think it's both um as andrew was saying the the volume is in in uh, developing nations but even though you know uh, the volume may not be in new zealand with such a small population 140 kilos of meat and dairy a year that that's uh, a lot (laughs) So that definitely needs to go down. I mean, the World Health Organization uh, recommends maximum 400 grams a day. Even that is that needs revision as well. Um, they need to look at the science. And if you look at the Eat Lancet report, that mm. is actually promoting a, a kind of more optimal diet based on health and sustainability.
1: That's right. And
3: that's what people should be looking at. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Not to not to mention that um, process meat is a class 1A carcinogen. So.
3: Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that we see now with the COVID-19 um, crisis that people with underlying health issues like obesity, diabetes, etc. Cardiovascular problems are more at risk and are dying more from the disease than uh, healthy people. So it cuts both ways. It really, really needs to be addressed um, from a pandemic perspective as well as kind of normal, normal life. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And that's a very... Um, Uh, timely remark you make about zoonotic diseases Mm. um, and its relationship with the livestock industry. We're clearing forests, we're, you know, housing these animals in squalor, very close to each other. Um, Most of the most of the problematic um, infections over the last few decades have been zoonotic diseases. So this is something that really needs addressing as well.
2: And, and the intensive farming industry is perfectly set up um, to mm. be a disease factory, actually, because you've got you've got three really important things. One is you've got really large numbers of animals uh, which are crowded together closely, so you've got ideal conditions for transmission. Secondarily, you've got really poor hygiene because uh, these facilities are often operated on an all-in, all-out system, which means that uh, the animals are placed in there. For example, a whole bunch of um uh, meat or broiler chicks and then they're grown up to marketable body weight and then they're cleared out and the, the actual shed is not cleaned until they're all cleared out because it's not really physically possible to clean them uh, whilst they're all in, in place. So um, they actually grow up and and reach their marketable body weight in conditions of increasingly poor hygiene. The substrate, these, um, the floor of the sheds become increasingly soaked with uh, manure and, and urine and um, and they spend increasingly longer periods of time um, on on that substrate, and they actually start to get uh, inflammation, irritation of their skin and chemical burns uh, in the latter weeks of their uh, raising period. So you have uh, conditions of poor hygiene. We see the same thing for uh, dairy cows uh, in um, giant sheds and uh, laying hens and, and other uh, intensively farmed animals. You've got the poor hygiene. And thirdly, you've got another problem, which is stress, uh, because these animals are overcrowded, denied the opportunity to express their highly motivated natural behaviours that are so important to them, um, and kept in these unnatural conditions. Uh, They become uh, quite stressed. They've also been uh, bred over many generations to be as um, productive as possible, whether it be in terms of milk production, egg production, or the generation of muscle mass in in the the, um, sense of beef cattle or pigs, for example. Um, so this means that a greater proportion of the animal's biological resources goes into producing uh, these outputs, and uh, smaller proportions available for other functions such as maintenance of the immune system. Uh, so they get um, immunocompromisation or or decreased competence of the immune system is caused by uh, long-term stress, uh, and this is an appropriate. I mean stress in the short term, it's appropriate that um, bodily functions should go into dealing with the stressor and not sort of background things like running the immune system. And that makes sense in the short term. It's not natural for animals to be in a stress state over a long period of time. And unfortunately, that's what the intensive farming conditions do to them. That plus the uh, breeding for high levels of productivity. Uh, mean that the immune system can become weaker. So you've got these three things. You've got very large numbers of animals crowded together, which is brilliant for transmission of disease. You've got poor hygiene and you've got stress weakening the immune system. So you've got basically this giant factory for disease uh, transmission and uh, on top of that we um, feed them low levels of antibiotics to try to suppress the diseases uh, that they would otherwise succumb to and sometimes to encourage the promotion of growth as well because sometimes these antibiotics can be growth promoters. Uh this means that because the antibiotics are in the environment sort of constantly at low levels they're not at high enough levels to actually kill all of a certain type of bacteria. They'll just kill the vulnerable bacteria and they'll leave the resistant bacteria alive. Now, the life cycle of bacteria is really short. E. coli, for example, is about 20 minutes. So within just a couple of days, you can go through many, many generations and you can get a population of bacteria, which has become completely resistant to an antibiotic because the vulnerable ones have all been killed. The tougher, more resistant ones have lived and and uh, reproduced themselves and replaced the population. So we have these uh, populations of bacteria becoming increasingly resistant to antibiotics because uh, they're being greatly overused uh, in the farming system. And on top of all of that, we know that um, around about uh, three quarters of new and emerging human diseases are coming from uh, wild animal populations, actually. So, this is where the concern arises about things like the bushmeat trade and the intensive farming of wild animal species such as pangolins in places like China. Yeah, um, And it, it's thought that HIV um, probably came from uh, the bushmeat trade in Africa, where local people who are you know, living in relative uh, poverty uh, have been naturally trying to supplement their, their diets and also. Uh, find profitable animals in the jungle to be able to sell in markets and they, they butcher those animals uh, after killing them. Uh, there's a lot of diseases and viruses in wild animal populations as we know with coronavirus and uh, simian immunodeficiency virus or SIV which is the primate version of HIV. Uh, many other diseases circulating in wild animal populations When these uh, animals are butchered, it releases bodily fluids. Uh, It's not uncommon for the people using those knives to sustain injuries, cuts to their skin. Uh, That's a breakdown in the skin barrier to external viruses and pathogens. They can cross over into the people's bloodstreams or into their uh, mucous membranes, their mouths, their eyes uh, through splashes. Uh, And it's it's thought that that's um, how SIV crossed into people in Africa from the bushmeat trade. Now we've had similar concerns about coronavirus. So animal farming uh, and the uh, trade in in wild animals uh, is a complete nightmare in terms of uh, disease um, uh, potential. In the modern world, of course, we now also have the ability for people to circulate around the globe incredibly quickly, uh, which has obviously only been a very recent phenomenon. Um, So now we have all of this going on. So if if there's a, a problem anywhere in the world, there's the potential for it to very quickly spread anywhere else. Um, so we, we've got this perfect storm, really, of factors which enable uh, pandemics uh, arising from animal populations. And we've been relatively lucky with coronavirus because uh, it's it's highly infectious, which, which is a major problem, but it's also relatively benign. Uh, a lot of the other ones out there in the wild animal populations are a whole lot more lethal uh, than coronavirus actually is. So we really need to... Um, acknowledge the the you know, terrible uh, suffering that this is causing uh, many people who are affected, but also take it uh, as a as a wake-up call and a warning uh, and be thankful that it wasn't something a whole lot more lethal and take the necessary steps to try to stop this from happening in the future, I think.
3: This is actually a perfect um, summary of ProFetch new report um, that's coming out in a few weeks. You haven't even read it, but that's exactly uh, exactly everything I'm saying. uh, Except for one or two more things, which is that um, we are also... uh, It is important to have a variety of species in natural areas, biodiversity is really important because that keeps the natural infection rate low. Um, But when we clear the forest for um, growing crops for livestock or or other types of um, purposes like clearing the timber or whatever, we come into contact humans with wild animals and those contact points weren't there before. And also if, if we clear all those species out, then there are fewer species or hosts to go to for viruses. So they are easily, more easily um, adapting to other hosts, and including humans. So that's additional to what you were saying. And that's exactly what was going to be in our next report, a very scientific report, um, even more so than this, this green protein report. Um, and we are hoping to influence a lot of policy and decision makers, because that hasn't been acknowledged enough in uh, pandemic preparedness planning. You know, everyone's talking about, oh, we need to be better prepared and have more uh, PPE and we have need to have better hospital plans. And no, that's that's kind of dealing with the inevitable. We can address the root cause, you know, and we should adjust, address the root cause. Yeah, so, it, yeah. It's, it's,
0: it's a term that we uh, refer to sometimes and um, that, you know, if, if, if the tap is on, the sink's overflowing, yeah. are you going to get a mop in a bucket? And keep exactly. mopping up the floor or you're going to go and switch the tap off you know you're going to go to yeah. the source of the problem and and it's exactly what you say you know yes more ppe well <laughs> i still don't want it around me so let's go to the source of the problem and and you know like you say the education the change of 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 um of, of our habits and the way we, we live, the way we operate, you know, um, and, and that's... Now, you talk about uh, the impact in biodiversity, um, but also, you know, the land clearing, the water use that's required for this intensive farming. I mean, that's also... Um, that's, you know, we, we hear about in the Amazon, we hear about in Southeast Asia. Um, we're losing, you know, s- species of the flora and fauna, and, and and that's that's important because there's a whole i won't call it a pyramid system but there's there's a whole cycle you know of how one living organism impacts the next which impacts the next inside and once you start taking a component of that out you're messing up the whole cycle um and yeah. and then you get more parasites here because nothing's eating them or there's more you know the, the, we're, we're throwing the whole imbalance out and, and these are
2: ecosystem services that we all depend upon uh to to survive on earth yeah uh, and you're right about the you know the, this biodiversity loss. Um, the rate of extinctions of the various taxonomic groups, whether they be uh, birds, reptiles, m- mammals, amphibians, and fish uh, amongst the vertebrates, is somewhere between um, about I think it's it's I think it's somewhere between about ten to a hundred times background rates, uh, and. We are now living through the sixth mass extinction event since fossil records began. There have been five other mass extinction events in previous history since there were animals with hard skeletons laying those down in the rock uh, historical record that that we can study. And they've usually been caused by uh, climatic disasters, actually. So a mass extinction event is is an event when more than 50% of all living creatures die upon the Earth. So there have been five of them previously in the last, I think, 540 million years. The most recent one was when the dinosaurs were wiped out about 65 million years ago. So we're now living through number six, actually. It's it's happening uh, now during our lifetimes, uh, and it's, it's very much because of our actions upon the Earth, unfortunately. And the mass clearing of uh, land for uh, animal agriculture is... Uh, right up there with with one of the uh, top causes um, unfortunately animal agriculture is one of the main um, uses of, of uh, the Earth's land surface uh, and it's it's a massively inefficient way to produce what we need to survive because we have to, uh, grow feed crops to feed them to animals, uh, of, of which only a small proportion ends up being usable uh, by people. The rest being uh, lost in the energy conversion that takes place from from uh, plant protein to animal protein. Mm. It's a very inefficient process. You can lose up to 90% during that process. So we've got to grow an awful lot more feed crops than if you you just ate those uh, ate the crops directly as as people could could do if if we grew uh, appropriate crops. So you need vastly more amounts of land so you've got to cut down so much more forests so, so much more greenhouse gases destroys so many more species and so on. Um, it's harder to think really of, of greater tragedy than the wholesale loss of the other living creatures with whom we share the planet. Um, and it's particularly tragic in the case of New Zealand because it, it has been a biodiversity hotspot. Uh, it's been one of the most biodiverse locations uh, in, in the world really and um, to think that so much of the landscape is being uh, degraded by pastoral farming and the waterways are being um, polluted by uh, nitrates and by uh, manure uh, runoff is is particularly tragic. so we highlight these factors in our report and we call for wholesale reform really of the um, farming sector to to bring in those um, those crop alternatives uh, fruit and vegetable alternatives that would uh, use uh, so much less land and allow uh, rewilding of uh, so much of the landscape.
1: And some of those crops would also um, fix the soil, wouldn't they?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like hemp and fava and, uh, beans, they fix nitrogen in the soil, so that's, uh, that's actually a solution. And uh, it's crazy that I think in New Zealand, um, hemp is not allowed to be used as a food supplement, but only as a kind of medicinal or, or animal pet uh, food. And um, that I mean that doesn't make sense <laughs> hemp seeds have been eaten for uh centuries uh, yeah. and, and hemp products, it's
2: yeah and legumes generally will fix nitrogen mm. in the soil yeah. there yeah. are many of those
0: because in, in the report i mean I, I love looking at stats because it's mind-blowing and so, and it's it's sometimes difficult to comprehend but one of the stats here new zealand arable land use 1961 11.39 percent 2014 2.24 mm-hmm. percent what yes. is going wrong with New Zealand? I mean okay, we know it 's a rhetorical question, but it 's just you know and, and and the other thing is that I, I wanted to raise and this is this is an ongoing misinformation that uh, people use as arguments that are um, i won 't say anti vegan but sort of question the the um, the, the sustainability of going vegan or, or its worth is, oh, but soy production is, is quite heavy on land use or, you know, uh, growing almonds is very, uses a, a, a quite a significant amount of water. But, Andrew, you mentioned this, that, you know, the, the majority of soy, for instance, that's, that's grown is not for us. So, yes, you're right. It is, uh, you know, um, it, it places quite a, a, a toll on land, but that's because we're growing so much to feed the animals, it was mm. to feed us. We wouldn't need to grow that much soy. And when you're Absolutely. talking about how much water almonds use, well, how much does a, you know, a glass of milk, or a piece yeah, of steak, exactly. you know, use water? So people don't relate things the right way. You know, it's it's they take it out of context. Absolutely. Um, this comes down to something called feed
2: conversion ratios. It's the the ratio. Um, for example, if, if you, it can take up to 10 kilograms of plant protein to produce a single kilogram of, of animal protein in the case of beef, and the number might be five to one in the case of pork, It uh, might be something like seven or six in the case of lamb, it gets down to something like around about three in the case of chicken, two in ca- case of fish, which is the most efficient. But still, you're losing half in the case of fish and you're losing 90% in the case of beef. So these are all feed conversion ratios. You never get one to one. You might get two to one or three to four to five to one. You never get one to one, which would be no loss of energy. It comes back to something that many of us learned um, way back in school, which is whenever you convert energy from one form to another, it's never perfectly efficient. You always lose some in the process. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's going on here, basically. The the inefficiencies in, involved in the production of animal protein are, are really enormous. They're, they're far, far bigger than um, converting motion to electricity, for example. Um, so that's why we need just so much more land uh, to produce the feed crops, to feed uh, to the farmed animals than if we just use that land
0: to grow uh, food for
2: humans directly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the economic impact. Now, New Zealand is known as, if it's not the biggest exporter, it's one of the, uh, when it comes to dairy, um, beef and lamb is another massive contribution to the economy. So very much heavily reliant on animal farming. What is the way forward here in New Zealand? Yeah,
3: it's not an easy question, but (laughs) I think... uh... We shouldn't be thinking of like for like so i think it needs to be a mixture of solutions um, i think the new zealand uh, gdp has changed um, in terms of agriculture it was over 12 percent in 1972 and it's now seven percent so and that's been stable for the last 20 years or so um, it's still significant but i think the other sectors have shown growth and that means that there is still growth potential and professional services uh, Such as financial, whatever they've grown a lot, um, real estate, um, tourism. So I think we need to look at a whole array of solutions. Um, If you want to be completely environmentally sustainably kind of um, thinking, then you know offshore uh, wind uh, energy, like sustainable energy, maybe could be a massive sector. um, And and another, what you call it, the. Uh, the water uh, power, 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 yeah yeah, uh, other solutions Uh, but of of course a lot of the land can and should be uh, repurposed as Andrew's saying rewilding for a lot of it and those areas that are naturally dry like in Canterbury, keep yeah, keep irrigating them to to grow that grass for cows this doesn't make sense we need to find a, a purpose for that land that makes sense and um uh, I think other areas can be repurposed for crop um, farming, and uh, and maybe some of the crops don't need as much water as as uh, grass does for for um, to go. Yeah, and and I think we need to also look at more. But we didn't really touch on that in the report. It's a whole different uh, remit, but that could be a follow-up report. Is to look at cultivated meat, and there's a growth in that area around the world, and. There could well be innovation um, in New Zealand labs that could make the difference between, you know, why should we actually uh, um, have cows that are very inefficient, that suffer, uh, that cause environmental damage, if we could engineer milk f- from uh, bioengineering and cultivated uh, processes. Some people may feel a bit kind of reluctant to embrace that solution, mm-hmm. but. That demand is still there, so it's at least a temporary solution. I'm not saying it needs to be there for all time, but it is definitely an, an addition to looking at all the plant-based um, options that we have.
2: And and um, I think some people are not as reluctant as perhaps from a selfish perspective I wish they had been. When we were in New Zealand, uh, we couldn't buy any sun-fed chicken. Sun-fed chicken is this wonderful alternative uh, chicken product this I think it was made from peas actually mm-hmm. uh, which appeared in the supermarkets and we had to um, go to three different supermarkets and and time our shopping trips uh, to mm. first thing in them on a Saturday morning just to be able to find some because it was so far coffee. far too popular it was yeah. selling out uh, yeah then can you actually can you actually find this product you can uh, now the so
0: can. Um, the Australian uh, equivalent of Woolworth's here countdown definitely stocks it um, mm-hmm. look things have improved. Things have improved. So they must have increased production um, to yeah. meet demand. So, yeah. so I think a lot of people are, are really interested in these products,
2: actually. And they, they've obviously done extremely well for the company. Yeah. Apparently, the plant-based uh, product sector is, is one of the um, fastest growing uh, food industry sectors, actually. So you know, absolutely it's booming.
0: Really about the finances. And interestingly, look, look who's buying into them. Look who's buying into them Nestle coca cola it's all it's all it's all the companies Plus you don't want, but yeah they're the ones buying into into those into those businesses funding it and thinking well there's profit to be made yep. but there's a, a company that I'm a little bit biased to because I'm originally from South Africa and there's a product called fries. And twenty years ago, because I've been, I started off as vegetarian. Twenty years ago, before I went fully vegan, but um, already then I was buying. They only had two two options on them, on you know that you could buy, and that was it. And then a few years later, you had a burger patty, sausage, and and that was it. Now, fries is here in New Zealand, and there's a plethora of, of options. So it it is it is. Um, you know, when I go to Australia, I think, oh, Australia's got more options here and then and I come back to New Zealand. And I think it's, it's improving, I think, globally. There's, there's certainly more options. But, um, you know, when we talk about solutions going forward, if you had an opportunity to sit down with our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, okay? Now, bear in mind, she's from Morrinsville. She comes from a dairy farming uh, sort of background. Her Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, is uh, one of the his notable uh, things is when Air New Zealand a couple of years ago thought they'd be progressive and and serve Beyond Meat burgers on, uh, I think it was in business class. He was the first person to criticize Air New Zealand for not supporting local meat producers. You know, why are we supporting another business from overseas? Why are we not supporting? So uh, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying there would be resistance but would be a hard sell. But if you had an opportunity to sit down and say, here's a report, and she and Jacinda said, okay, I'll grant you one, uh, you know, one recommendation that I'll pass. What do you think is the most impactful uh, sort of action that you would like to see implemented?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it is a tough one because um, I think having a New Zealand specific focus, um, so a company that can. Developed product like Sunfed Meat uh, Chicken is probably going to be the biggest impact because um, uh, people buy in more to the kind of made in New Zealand uh, brand. Um, So it shouldn't be Beyond Meat Burger in that sense, Um, even though they're very good and they are liked by uh, lots and lots of um, meat eaters. And that is the purpose. We need to get a product that is acceptable and not only acceptable but preferable uh, to be consumed by meat eaters than, than the meat patty. So I think that that's what we need. Um, yeah, we need investment in that kind of replacement um, product. And um, when people taste taste it and, and like the taste, I think that, that makes all the difference. The price point is also important. We need to keep the price down. Um, people are not going to pay... You know, the Beyond Meat burgers here in the UK are also more expensive than the meat burgers. Yeah. So it's not as accessible as, um, yeah, as as meat. Unfortunately, uh, that that is something we need to address.
2: I would say also try to connect with the farming community, acknowledge the contribution that that sector's made to New Zealand's development. Uh, it has been one of New Zealand's biggest um, financial sectors, and it has contributed a lot to the economy in the past. But also note that. Um, you know, While we're grateful for the contribution that they've made, note that uh, we're moving to the future now. Um, it's time for New Zealand to address some of the very severe problems that have been mounting up, whether it be the rates of obesity um, and overweightness and associated public health problems, whether it be the wholesale destruction of, of species and biodiversity across New Zealand because of clearing of land for uh, pastoral farming and the pollution of the waterways. Uh, whether it be the greenhouse gas productions as well, and the, the quite serious animal welfare problems that exist across the farming of all major farm species within New Zealand. So I'd say that uh, it, it's important to know that, you know, clearly we can't just carry on uh, with businesses and all, as we have been, because these problems sadly have been piling up and are now really threatening uh, New Zealand's public health, uh, environmental environmentally pristine image, and of course, animal welfare that people increasingly care about. I'd say i'd say all of these do warrant a change in uh, social policy and we need to support uh, the farming sector and other sectors of society in helping to make that change by setting up the appropriate um, policies funding implementing uh, environmentally responsible uh, taxation and uh, education a range of other measures uh, which we describe in our report actually to assist society in making that transition into the future yep. so that new zealand can ha- have a good future rather than hanging on to the past uh whilst the problems uh, from that increasingly pile up and, and threaten the future
1: i think that's a really important point to touch on is um the farmers do need support because it will be a radical shift but ultimately this will be helping them move to a more sustainable business model um, which would allow them to do this for longer um, so and i think hopefully. that's why
2: we're seeing big companies such as you know cargill's um meat producers in the U.S. and a range of others actually diversify their portfolios and, and get into bringing on plant-based product lines. Uh, you know, if, if these people want to have a future, that's also in keeping with probably the the um, ethics and values that many of them do have. They're for the environment. And, and, and so on. Then they need, I think, to be making that change and be supported in
0: making that change. Andrew, you've you, you've touched sorry you've touched on a very important point about supporting and educating and so on the farmers. Because one thing that um, you know, I I don't believe it's the right approach and and thankfully hasn't been happening in new zealand that i'm aware of but i know in australia and emma can probably add to this there are activists that go and invade farmers uh, farms and you know and in and, and some respect to the extreme of threatening or stealing livestock and so on and that's to me that's not being proactive and what this report is showing is and this is what i love about this report is it's about solutions Right, it's it's you've actually got tangible. Okay, we acknowledge this is where we are. We acknowledge, like you say, the contribution that farmers uh, make to to you know, job creation and 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 GDP and etc. etc. But let's let's move in a direction that's more ethical, more sustainable, uh, and better for our future. And 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 you know, and that's where you know, like you said, the education, the support, the tools. So okay. I want to do it, but where do I start? How do I do it? So, you know, it's it's having that infrastructure. Um, and, you know, in New Zealand, James Cameron has shown how you can take a dairy farm and convert it into a, uh, you know, a, a more sustainable producing farm. So, you know, it is possible. And a lot of others are doing it as well, for sure. Yeah,
3: they're, they're very um, exciting examples all over the world of where, um, farms have turned into sanctuaries and um, the farmers moved into a, a different business here in the UK actually as not quite as a result of the Grow Green report but at the same time uh, a farmer got in touch he was a beef farmer and he had already qualms about you know keeping cattle and, and sending them to slaughter and it kind of broke his heart every time and so he said enough is enough and I just want to um, uh, give these animals a good, good old life and good old day, and turn this farm into a vegan organic farm. Um, and that was Jay, and that's now a film about his decision and his life. It's called 73 Cows. It's really nice, really touching. Um, and I think these examples really show that there are other ways out for farmers. And um, and, and exactly for, you know, as Andrew said, for businesses, uh, the, the, the massive... Uh, Tycoons, they are diversifying and also the financial sector needs to realise that the money is going in a different way Uh, because of all these pandemics and outbreaks of disease and volatility in the market and everything, it's not a good bet anymore to put your money into animal agriculture. It's much more profitable to put it into um, plant-based and cellular agriculture. That's where where the money is. So all of these forces are moving together, and these are the kind of things that we're doing at at ProVech as well, influencing that landscape, talking to banks, talking to uh, investors, Um, We're influencing um, major companies working with Unilever, etc. And some people, some activists feel like, oh, you shouldn't be working with Nestle or Unilever. But that's where the change is, you know, that's where the the volume is. Of course, we could continue to support vegan businesses and independent uh, manufacturers. I think that's really important. But the big change for the mainstream for the flexitarians comes from those big, um, big companies.
1: Absolutely. Important point. Um, Yasmeen, um, Andrea, I want to be really mindful of the time. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, You've listed some incredibly important um, uh, talking points here, and I would recommend anyone that's listening at the moment to download this report and read the whole, you know, 90 pages of it. It's a good read. Um, Just set aside more than an hour. Um, But for... For people who have listened and they want to action some changes right now, so for the mindful consumers out there that are listening, could you maybe just leave us with some key things that we can do personally and
3: start implementing straight away?
2: Can we first just mention where people can find the report? Um, it's on...
3: So it's on, on my website, jasmindebo.com, so J-A-S-M-I-J-N-D-E-B-O-O.com and
2: or well, you can probably just uh web search for the name of the, the green it. Protein. we
0: will have it in our show notes um oh, great. The, the vegan society uh for new zealand has it a, a direct link there so um our listeners will have already those that are have, want to be prepared for the episode they will have <laughs> downloaded this already but we'll have it in the show notes with all the links to your websites and everything else So. Easy okay. accessible, Thank you very much yeah, me. absolutely. It has an executive summary as
2: well of, of just a, a couple of pages at the front for people yeah. that don't have time right. for the full 90 pages.
3: Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What people can do individually, so it depends on where you're at. Uh, if you're already vegan or mostly vegan, uh, help spread word, uh, help others, you know, to uh, educate them and get them onto veggie challenges. Um, there are lots and lots of different ones. There's a safe um, eat kind challenge for six weeks. There's um, in Australia, No Meat May, uh, oh, that's just finished, um, but there are lots of initiatives that people can, can get on, uh, sign on to, to experience what it's like to eat more plant-based. Um, for those people who are not yet uh, vegetarian or vegan, just uh, replacing meals one at a time, you know, whether you go for uh, certain days and meet through Mondays or certain uh, meals, some people I know are vegetarian, vegan during the week and not weekends, so it's the first step in the right direction. And learning about all these issues, um, learning about uh, the potential of uh, plant-based, I think it's um, yeah, very powerful. And, how, and what we said earlier in the show, like how that could help with athletic performance, for example, your own health. Uh, that can be the starting point for some people, and then they want to learn more about what, what happens to animals later. You know? Sometimes animal arguments are not the best to start. Their whole journey, you
0: know, they, they come in later. The angry vegan approach <laughs> doesn't work for most people.
3: No.
2: Um, and this is where uh, the animal advocacy movement is starting to learn about something called human behavioural change. Uh, and it's now one of the hot topics within the animal welfare world, actually. Uh, there have been conferences on it recently in the United Kingdom. But it, it's, it's starting to understand what's actually successful in generating uh, changes in in people's behaviour, and it's certainly generally not not criticising them, and it's it's it seems apparently to be appealing a bit to self interest uh, initially. People who are not um, into plant based diets may well not be open to concerns about farm animal welfare initially. Uh, they may very very much be open to. Uh, the argument um, and the understanding that uh, this kind of transition will, in, will provide them with personal benefits to health and well-being and fitness and so on. Uh, and, and, and what happens then is, is they, they may well start to make that change. And once they've made the change, they, they can then find that it's not, not as difficult and uh, untasty and, and awkward and strange as, as they might have initially thought. And, and then they start to see it as being normal. And and at that point, that's when they apparently can become more open to the other arguments that subconsciously they resisted previously. So so the concern about farming and welfare and so on. So there's there's a process psychologically that that people go through. And this whole field is is human behavioural change. And we're you know it's we are I think getting smarter about about understanding that. Uh, another hot topic is effective altruism. Uh, there are so many different. Uh, issues that we can get drawn into, and effective altruism is the notion that we look at all this strategically and try to work out the issues and the approaches that are most likely to do good given our finite resources. So that that's another uh, area of interest, and particularly for uh, philanthropic uh, organisations and individuals, they're becoming increasingly interested in uh, the effective altruism movement to make uh, decisions about where they should invest their time and and funding as well. So mm-hmm. the, these. This is um, a long way removed, I think, from um, the way that grassroots animal advocacy used to be. And I think people are increasingly learning about these sorts of topics and moving in this direction. I think it's a very good thing
0: well there's no there's no excuse there's it doesn't matter what stage we are at there is absolutely something we can contribute to make an even bigger change in the right direction and um, you know to our listeners we've gone on about it but really download this report you know like Andrew said just read the executive summary if that's if that's all you have the time and patience for but you'll still get a lot out, out of that those that love stats those that love to deep dive look more into this and and uh, for our Australian listeners and anyone else it's it's relatable um, you know maybe ignore the specific figures but the, the 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 concept is effect the message is the same so we really do need to change our behavior so yes man Andrew it's been an absolute delight thank you so so much um, it's it's the start of the day for yourselves uh, so thank you so much for for um, you know, sort of giving us up uh, sup your, your breakfast time and um, we're really, you know, we know our listeners will certainly get a lot out of this. So um, thank you so much for the amazing work that you do and uh, we certainly hope to touch base again. Maybe talk a little bit more about your uh, sporting endeavours.
1: Sounds Looking good. forward to Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Yep. Thanks for
2: having us. It's been nice to hear some Australian and New Zealand accents <laughs> again. Now we don't hear <laughs> too so much of that uh, in this part of
0: the world. Thank you. No. Thank you. It's
3: been great.
0: So before we go, Andrew, you've got some exciting research that you're actually um, undertaking at the moment.
2: Absolutely. Um, Within the human space, there have been many studies looking at the health of people uh, living on plant-based diets and comparing them to those of meat eaters. Uh, Within the animal space, there are almost none of these. And of course, I'm a veterinarian. I've got a particular interest in plant-based and alternate diets for cats and dogs, actually. So what I'm doing now is I'm actually running uh, a very large-scale survey of people uh, where it asks people uh, about the health status of their cats and dogs, uh, what kind of diets they feed them on, and about a range of behavioral indicators which should indicate how happy the animals are to eat uh, plant-based diets, meat-based diets, or whatever it is that they're being uh, fed. So this, this survey takes people about five to 10 minutes to, to actually do. It's going to provide crucial information. I've had nearly a 1,000 people participate so far, hoping for a few thousand in the next uh, couple of months, actually. And then I'll, I'll close the survey and analyze the results and, and publish the report. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to find out which of the diets that make uh, cats and dogs Uh, healthiest uh, and happiest as well so uh, i'd love it if if anyone that's got a cat or a dog could uh, please consider uh, spending five or ten minutes uh, helping find this crucial information out by participating in this online
0: survey absolutely and we'll make sure we include the links to these surveys in our show notes so please be sure to go to our facebook page uh, look Mo and i up on our respective social media links um, it'll be on our respective websites as well so look at us sh- look up our show notes for this episode and you'll find the links to this survey looking forward to the results andrew thanks very much indeed thank you for listening to the lentil intervention podcast if you found this interesting
3: make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends